Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember I'm only as hip as my guest. And that's weird. For some reason, my uh, my music didn't start today. That's crazy. It always starts. Anyway, I think it's it's I think it's a sign. It's I'm never usually in the studio for Wednesday, but I got today in because I wanted to have my guest on today. And I got to tell you, he and I don't know where he lives, but I live in Burbank, and it's been extremely humid lately. And, and it doesn't happen usually out here. Usually Burbank's about twenty five percent humidity. It's just been it's been really disgusting lately. And I was sitting there. I woke up at like four in the morning the other night because I couldn't sleep, and I checked my phone. And the humidity, humidity was eighty six percent. That's what I grew up with. That's just that's just disgusting. That's like that's like Sharknado weather. <laughs> I'm joking. That's my guest today. My guest is Anthony C. Ferrante. How you doing, Anthony? I'm doing great. How you doing? Good. Uh, we'll we'll get to your movie eventually. But before we get to Sharknado two, I have to ask you: When you took on this whole Sharknado directing and Sharknado two, did you ever? I mean, in your wildest dreams, did you ever think it'd become such a huge, huge phenomenon? No, I mean, you know, you do these low-budget movies, they uh, they get made, and, you know, you, you sometimes get a small following, you get a little little bit bigger following, but never where the whole universe is like, hey, I, I want to watch your movie. And, uh, you know, I thought if we were lucky, it could have been a cult film, you know, maybe five or six years down the road. I knew we had the genre crowd, I knew we had the sci-fi crowd, and I thought maybe we made the greatest stoner movie ever made. Um, but uh, other than that, uh, you know, no, it was, it was a big surprise because you, you never, we didn't set out to make something where kids and parents and people were getting in large groups of people like just to embrace it. it we never anticipated that kind of reaction it, at the time of making it. It was just, it, we were making a, a fun, low budget movie. The social media was phenomenal. I mean, it was, you looked at it and you're like, oh my God, I think it was like something like a billion, a billion tweets. On the I second mean, one. Yeah. Yeah. We had over a billion impressions on Twitter for the second movie's uh, first airing, which makes no sense. And I don't know exactly what all that means, but I know it's pretty damn cool. Oh, it's huge. No, I was sitting there going, well, because I, I even I tweeted a while ago, uh, I tweeted at Mark McGrath, who I don't know, but I just said, Mark McGrath is in Sharknado 2. I said, I guess the uh, lead singer for Smash Mouth will be in uh, Sharktopus 3. <laughs> and he retweeted it. And, I was there, and that was like, wow, because then some people liked it, but it was it's just, it's cool. It just goes to show that people are just, they like to have fun at the movie again. I, I think that what it, that's what it was. I think a lot of it was... Uh, you know, both summers, it's, you know, the, the most of the movies in the movie theaters are, have been pretty dark. And around the world, just things are dark. And so to have something that makes you smile, and, you know, there's no overt sexuality in the movie. There's nothing questionable. There's a little bit of violence and gore, but it's kind of playful and, and fake. Uh, so people embraced it. They wanted something silly, you know. I think, I think the, people, the people that also have a problem with Sharknado where they over over uh, analyze it oh sharks can't be in a tornado and it's like yeah it's not it's called sharknado that's what it is that's our villain so you know cars don't turn into robots live with it exactly uh so, so, you, so you're from northern california yeah northern now california. as a kid did you did you want to get into directing at a young age did you know oh, yeah did, and also as i look at your you're more into the darker sci-fi uh slasher stuff it seems as a kid like what year, what age did you know that you sat there and said, you know what, this is something, did you see a movie that just changed your life? I, I, well, you know, I, when I was 11, uh, I wanted to make movies. I, I remember looking through the newspaper at school, and I, I, I'm, now that I think about it, I'm trying to realize, why did I have a movie, why did I have a paper at, at, at school when I was in sixth grade? And I was just looking at the movies, and I'm like, I want to make movies, because I love movies, and I, and I went to them every day, every, every weekend. And, uh, and so I had to figure out how to do that because in the small town I came from in Antioch, there wasn't access to stuff to make films with. So instead of uh, making films initially, I just started writing reviews for the class paper and you know, kind of doing what the Roger Niebert and Gene Siskel kind of thing. Were you a and, hard reviewer? Were you one of those guys? Like some people, like, like, like okay, let's say as an as 11-year-old kid, when you're writing reviews, if Sharknado 2 came out, would you would you have given it a good review? Or, oh, yeah. or would you have said, you have said it's fun? Because there used to be a guy in San Diego, his, his name was David Elliott, big film critic when I slipped down there. And he would like, an Adam Sandler movie would come out. And you know what you're getting with an Adam Sandler movie. Exactly. And he would put this whole thing, and it's like, dude, it's an Adam Sandler movie. It's not, you know, it's not a Daniel Day-Lewis movie. So were you, were you very... Uh, Objective in your well, well, I mean, I think when I started doing, I saw things I probably shouldn't have seen when I was eleven, uh, but uh, but I, you know, I was I was still a fan, and then as I started continually doing that, I started working for newspapers and magazines and doing reviews for that down the road. You know, I think I got a lot harder, and then when I started making my own stuff, I got more liberal again. So it was it, it, I started looking at things differently, and then I stopped reviewing altogether. 
When did you start actually making your own stuff? At what age? Now, I was in high school. Um, I got... There was a community college uh, nearby, Los Medanos College, and they had a film course that was going on in the evenings. And so I, I kind of worked out an arrangement with my, with my high school and with LMC so I could attend that class. And that was kind of the, the beginning of the end for me. I mean, I got access to equipment, got to actually make a student, a Super 8 film, which was kind of fun. Uh, they had a Super 8 camera, so I, I messed around with that. Met some people that are still my friends today uh, from, uh, from that class. Uh, one, one of them uh, is uh, Steve Felty, or M. Stephen Felty, who's pretty much been in just about every movie I've done. Um, so, I mean, I've been, I've been working with him forever. Uh, what what was your first movie? Do you remember that eight millimeter? Was it was it a something? Was it a horror? Or what yeah, was it? yeah. It was a it was a weird little thing. I mean, it, it was basically I was obsessed with Friday the Thirteenth. You know, the, the slasher movies. So we, but it was a com- It was a parody thing, which is kind of interesting. It was like basically a, a serial killer gym bag or something, and it was it was sort of done like a movie trailer, like the Friday the Thirteenth. Then and then um, I I was playing around with a video camera, and I went out with a friend of mine, um, Steve Buck, and. Uh, we we shot this we shot this thing of him just getting on uh, a merry-go-round like one of those little kid merry-go-rounds right. in at Kmart, and it was just it was just silly and it was funny, and uh, so then we decided let's go out and do a parody of martial arts movies, but let's do it like those martial arts movies in the sense that let's go and shoot a whole bunch of unrelated stuff, and then make something up in the editing, and then dub it over and try to figure out what the plot is with dubbing it over so it was this weird exercise and i had no idea what what was what i was on because it was just it was an insane thing and we made like two of those we did uh, one of them was called dumb chucks and it was because you know numb chucks dumb chucks right. and then the other one was dumb chucks go to hell and they were just these really strange comedies <laughs> um before that i did a 15 minute uh horror film called uh uh eyes of the night wind so that was another one that uh I had uh, done that was more you know traditional kind of spooky horror. Now, when you screen dumb chucks, did you screen it to your class? Or? Did, never, no. That that was never, that was actually done outside of the class. Once once I had access to the equipment, I just kept making stuff. So um, that that actually aired on our local access station. When well, what did people think about it? Did you get any uh, review? I mean, it's, did you get any people say, "Wow"? Because people, I'm one of those people. I love just weird stuff because I mean, you, you watch so much stuff and it's so. Stylistic. Then you watch like it's even on TV now. You know, you watch the show The Bridge. It's just different. You know, Fargo was just you know they're off. They're different. They're they're just they're weird. And I I, that, I think people are starting to really enjoy that. Well, different is okay now. Back then, the stuff we did was pretty weird. And, and also, local access was people sitting there going, "Hi, my name is right. Sam, <laughs> and we're today we're going to talk about crocheting dogs." Yes, this is how you do a poodle. You get the brack yarn. You know, I mean that that's kind of you know there was occasionally something fun or whatever. So this stuff just really stood out as as okay. What are they trying to do? And you know we're still learning and we don't have resources, so we're trying to make stuff uh, look cool, but with what our limitations were. And I just I just kept doing that. I mean I I kept plugging away. We kept trying to be more and more ambitious. I ended up doing this forty five minute horror film, which in retrospect should have been ninety minutes. And I did a lot of comedy stuff. I, I love I love comedy. I always liked it, but it was it was always kind of buried within sort of my dark sense of humor. Um, I did a I did a sixteen millimeter short called God Talk, which was a satire on religion. Um, and then uh, you know just again it was just writing scripts and working as a journalist and making films. Was that was that before you went to San Francisco State or was that after? Uh, that was before San Francisco State. So you so you, you went to the community college and took the night class, and then you went to San Francisco. And now yeah, well, I, I did two years. I think two two years. I think at Los Madonna's College. After that, and then I went to San Francisco State as a film major. As a film major, okay, yeah. So I got I got a I got a uh, AA in liberal arts at LMC, and then um, I got a BA in film at San Francisco State. Now, what was that like? Because I know a lot of times, and I, I talk to actors who once you know once they've been doing their own stuff, and they go to like I know someone who was booked a movie, and then she was had to. You know, was it getting to USC film school? So for you, you you sort of had your edginess and your what you were doing. What was it like for you to go where all of a sudden they would just probably start teaching you teaching you structure, right? In a in the film school, uh, San Francisco State was interesting. Um, I mean, I, I learned a lot. I learned about you know history of film. Learned a, just learned a, a wealth of information from them. But um, at the time, if you liked mainstream entertainment or horror films 
it it was it was like you know you you liked watching somebody get beat in the town square it was it was very strange you bring up something that was mainstream and and it was it was almost like a no-no which it, i i remember you know i mentioned a movie and then somebody came up with me afterwards you like these kind of movies yeah and then i became friends with them because it, it was like it was a very it was a very kind of art it was more art art film kind of school in a way um i think it's changed but i mean at the time it was it was very it was very strange and uh so I actually uh, learned a lot by I was covering uh, uh, set visits for Fangoria magazine, and they would send me down to Los Angeles to cover uh, you know sets and stuff. And it wasn't the big studio stuff; it was like a lot of independent things. So you know when you when you're on a studio set, you, you know that's very very structured. Where okay, you can only move here, you can only do here. But on an independent film, it's like hey, come over here, here meet this person, hey, just hang out. And you know, so I would hang out for like an entire day on these sets, and I would be learning so much. And I would go down there and you know be on a Charles Band set and say, oh, that's how they do that. And I go back and make a short film, you know, oh, that's how they do rain and lightning. So okay. then I would be doing that that way. And so that was kind of that augmented my what I learned from San Francisco State. So it was kind of a, a combination of both of those things, and then doing my own shorts. And also the thing is, there was a core film program, but you, there was only like thirty people that could get into it, and everybody wanted into it, but you, it was very hard to get into it. Uh, so I, I got my, I basically utilized everything since I came from a place that I didn't have access to things. Um, I utilized everything that I did from journalism to, to schooling to my own stuff to try to learn how to make movies. Uh, you know, j- being a journalist, I got to interview all my idols, John Carpenter, David Cronenberg, John Landis. I mean, I got to interview these guys, and, and it was from a different perspective as well because I was obsessed with their films, and so the questions I had for them were very different too. But, right. it, but it, te- it teaches you a lot. And uh, so it's, I've had both sides. So when you graduated... San Francisco State University. Um, when do you decide you have to move to LA? Would you hang out up there for a while? Or do you go? I'm going down to LA. No, I always knew I was going down to LA. In fact, I think my, the last course I did, I did from LA. It was like I had to finish a screenplay. It was uh, the last. It was like a sort of a, a last credit that I needed to do. Now, were you writing a lot of screenplays then? Uh, uh, at San Francisco State was the first time I wrote a full feature screenplay. I was working on a bunch of different scripts. Like I did a lot of shorts. Um, and there was this one project called Night Pulse that I was trying to crack for years, but I had never finished it as a full screenplay. So um, what I did, <laughs> again, it just goes back to, to, to kind of like rebelling against things. It's like I decided I was going to write the strangest script ever for, for my class. <laughs> and it was called uh, A Wave of Mutilation. And it was about a mime. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> and, 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 and it was, and it was, it was I love that Pixie song. So that's where it kind of came from. And uh it was um, it was it was a very and I, a lot of the scripts I'd written had very nice characters and I wanted to write a a script where the characters were all flawed and not necessarily nice people and and by whatever circumstance I wanted to make sure everybody died at the end of the movie and it's not a serial killer movie even though it sounds like that but it was just a really weird thing and so that was that was actually my first full feature. Um, I, I still like the script a lot. It's actually really good. See, that's weird. A lot of times they say when people, when they write their first screenplay, then they turn around and they put it back in their drawer and they don't look at it again. But for you, it's like you, you could probably sit there and rewrite it now because you, you know, you, what you've learned. Yeah. And you could probably get it made. Yeah, probably. Uh, it, it, there, I've a- actually recently, because uh, Robbie Rist, who I write a lot of music with, we were talking about. Oliver from the Brady Bunch. Yeah, Oliver from the Brady Bunch. Uh, we were going, Wait, was yeah. that who was going to come in? He was going to try, yeah. Because when, when I was out. a kid, I looked like him. I had the haircut. Yeah. I, that's so funny. I didn't, th- I didn't put the correlation to it. That's funny. Um, so, so we were talking recently, like, we, we got to write a play, a musical or something. And then, well, we need, we need a story. And then I started thinking, hmm. And then I thought that that script could actually make an interesting uh, play because you could do really good music with it, and it's and it's strange and quirky because I I can't I can't just write a normal, you know, here let's write a love story, right? You know, <laughs> I, I've tried doing that, but it's just not. I, I I tend to like the things that are off the beaten track. So when you're in LA, you're down here, and you you have some body of work from school. Now, were you trying to get an agent as a film? What were you trying to break into when you got here? Were you trying to go straight into directing, or do you said I want to write? And you know, because a lot of times people have a problem getting a uh, agent when you have screenplays, and then some people, you know, go out on their own and do it. What 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 avenue did you take? 
Uh, well, the, the thing I, I'll, I'll impart on anybody that wants to be a filmmaker is there's no set way. And I kind of knew that from talking to a lot of, you know, a lot of the people I'd interviewed over the years. Um, so I came down, kind of made my nut with uh, keeping the journalism stuff to, to make a living. Uh, but then I knew a lot of people that I was able to get onto a film uh, as a PA. Um, called it was called I forgot what it was Necronomicon or something. Um, and these titles great? Like you sit there sometimes you go, wait, is that, is that even a word? And you it go, is, you know. Um, so, so I was hired for like a week to be a PA, and they I showed the line producer my, a short film I did that had a lot of makeup effects, and they go, hey, do you want to do you want to coordinate makeup effects as well? You know, not knowing really what they were saying is, look, we we need someone to do this, but we just want to pay a PA to right. to work for <laughs> twenty hours a day. Uh, but I'm I'm like, yeah, sure, that sounds cool. And I knew a lot of the effects guys from uh, from interviewing them over the years. So we I brought a couple friends of mine down from Northern California who had worked on some of my projects, and we made a sort of a de facto effects team in addition to working with the other people that were hires and effects team. And so I ended up doing all this makeup effects stuff on top of PAing. And then on the director's next film, which was Brian Usna, that was who directed it, I said, I want to be your full-time makeup effects supervisor. And so he said, sure. So I started doing, I, I got in by doing the makeup effects supervising. I never, I never proclaimed to be a, a makeup effects artist. I can do a little bit of it, but I would come in and I'd be hired to pull these teams together, figure out the effect sequences, keep the budgets down. And so that became a thing. And so as I progressed with that, I'm going, okay, I'm going to utilize that to do second unit directing for any effect stuff. So on the next film, I said, I want to be the second unit director because everything was about how do I get to be a director? Okay. And how do I build up my reel? Like I have my shorts, but you need stuff that's legitimate. So then I started doing a lot of second unit on top of the makeup effects. And then I was starting, they started giving me scenes and other things. And I kept doing that in tandem and kept building up my reel which led to Boo. Right, I saw Boo was in, uh, what is it? I have it right here. There's a great, just on Wikipedia, there's a great little graph, I don't know if you know this, of you, and it's divided, it's like a, it's like a, uh, what's that called? Um, Chart. Yeah, no, no, on the computer, on on Word, an Excel Excel chart. Excel, yeah. And it says year, film, director, producer, executive producer, writer, actor, role, and notes. (laughs) And that's pretty cool, and so it's green shaded. So when I look at that, I was like, I was like, okay, well, Boo, I mean, you wrote and directed it. Yeah. So now what was Boo about? Uh, Boo was a uh, haunted hospital movie. Um, when, I, when I was doing makeup effects, we shot at a place called Santa, um, Linda Vista Hospital in uh, downtown L.A. Um, I think it's in Boyle Heights. And we were, we were shooting it as if it were a functional hospital, and it wasn't. It was pretty much an abandoned hospital. And I kept walking around going, this place is already pre-production design. It's creepy, and no one's using it for what it is, which is a creepy abandoned hospital. And so I said, I, th- I figured if I was going to get to direct my first movie, it would have to be uh, something that was self-contained and it could be done in one location. So that, so I wrote this whole script around uh, uh, the Linda Vista Hospital. And I, I, I love ghost stories. That's the, my favorite stuff. I love the suspense-driven things. And, um, you know, it, I kept developing it over, over multiple years. And finally, David Allen, who had a company called Kismet, they were getting ready to do some uh, low-budget movies. They had just done a film called Dog Soldiers, which is a great horror film. And uh, he said, well, we have this one film, but it's not written. I go, well, what about Boo? He goes, I remember reading that a couple years ago, but that's like a $2 million movie. We're doing this for 500 I could do it for 500 Let's okay. just do it. <laughs> so I, and you, but you were connected. You said, I'm going to direct it, though. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And uh, he had seen my stuff, so he knew. Um, and, I, and I took him down to the hospital that I wrote it for and said, look, let, let me just take you down there and show you what I wrote this for. And we walked around and we went to lunch and he goes, let's make the movie. And we actually shot at the place I wrote it for, which never happens in this town. It's like, you know, one in, one in a million chance that that ever happens. And uh, that was the beginning of, of, of directing and now doing, we, we made this really cool uh, low budget movie and it did really well. Uh, I was actually, How exciting was that? I mean, just, you know, if you must have been sitting there like, you know, all of a sudden when you're just sitting out for lunch and he says, we're going to do it. I mean, you must have, your eyes must have been like, whoa, you know. Oh, yeah, I was thrilled. It was, it was you know, that's that's the holy grail. It, it took a long time, but I had, I had uh, paid my dues and I finally got that opportunity. And, uh, you know, I was going to do everything I could to make this thing, you know, nonstop and, and use everything that I learned as a makeup artist and being on a crew uh, and all the shorts just kind of it all came together. I hadn't seen Boo in in two or three years, and last last year we we actually have a, a 35 millimeter print of it, and uh, 
um, Boston, uh, we showed a, we screened, or was it Rhode Island? Somewhere last year we did a screening of it. And I watched it on the big screen. Um, and uh, it was right after Sharknado hit. And I, I realized there's a lot of stuff in common with Sharknado with Boo, because I'd forgotten how much stuff we crammed into Boo. I mean, it doesn't stop. It's it's unrelenting. It's like for this little movie, there's just things happening all the time in it. And that's kind of what happened with Sharknado. We just put as much stuff as we could in, in that film. What was it like for you watching Boo? I mean, like when you watched it from years later. I mean, I know I'm sure when it came out, you had one experience. But you said, you know, you watched it. And now you've developed as a director because you've directed and written more stuff. What did you think, like looking back, did you notice that, I mean, you said stuff's in Sharknado, but did you mo- notice that you've grown or do you say, God, this is pretty damn good for my first movie? Uh, you know, the, it was the first time, it, I think it was the first time I was able to actually watch it as a movie because it wasn't on DVD. It was like, you know, just sitting in the theater and seeing if things worked again. Um, I, I'm I'm very proud of Boo. There, there, you know, that, that movie holds together really well. I wanted to make something that was timeless, that didn't feel like it was dated or came from a specific year. And I think we succeeded in it. It's It's got a lot of great stuff. I, I'm, I, I, still, I still think it's my best film just because it's my first. Um, there's stuff that I, I, I hate about it. Like I hate all, there's stuff in all my movies that, that bug the crap out of me. Uh, but, um, you know, the, the ending, we probably needed a little more time and money to beef up the ending a little bit, but there's, there's a charm to it and, um, it, it's very controlled and it's, you know, the, I, if anything, I would probably nip and tuck. A little bit. I'd probably pull out maybe two minutes of runtime, but then I would also put in a couple things that we we were, were asked to take out because for whatever weird reasons, there was a couple story points that I, I still felt needed to be back in there. But it's but I think it's like it's a subtraction and a contraction. I think I would add a tiny bit and I would take right. away a little bit because I saw like oh just I cut a couple frames there. I, I am I am I'm terrible. It's like uh, on Sharknado two, they're going we want to do an extended cut of the movie. It's like great. Can I cut some stuff out? <laughs> I'm the only director that does it. So we did this extended cut where we put some stuff back in. Uh, not much, but these little things. But then I, I pulled out like a little 20-second scene, and then I moved a couple things around, and I trimmed things here. Because <laughs> we only had we had like five months to put this thing together. So after all the visual effects are in, you start going, oh, I'd like to, you know. I understand Lucas to some extent, not on that big grand scale of ruining such a, such things that he did. I mean, you know, he had a lot of money to make his movies. Right. So him messing with them, it's like, well, you know, dude, you got you got a lot of dough to do right. this stuff. But but for us, you know, it's like when you have no time to put it out or you have like, you know, 15 days to shoot a film like Boo, you know, you, you kind of got to start going, eh, let's do this. So you shot Boo in 15 days? Yeah, I think it was 15 or 16. Now, how long was your normal day? Was it 18 hours? I mean, did you even get to sleep or? Well, no, I don't get to sleep on these movies, but um, I've never had the 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 luxury and I don't think I'd, I necessarily want to be able to shoot like nonstop for 18 hours. I mean, anytime we had to go over, we could never go over on a lot of these okay. movies. It was, there was, there were specific reasons like on, on boo, just because of the hospital. And I think there was a fire marshal. We couldn't go over 12 hours. So even though we needed like that extra 30 minutes to finish something, we had to stop. So you had to, you had to get everything. And, um, but, but I mean, you know, I'm, I don't sleep on these things, you know, cause you're still working on things or, you know, everybody goes home, I'm sitting there with the, the AD and you're trying to figure out the next day or trying to sort through problems. And that's happened on every single one of these movies. I mean, Sharknado, I mean, we had 18 days on both Sharknado one and Sharknado two. Um, you know, I'd be up till, I think we had a day where I was up to like 12 at night and suddenly they called and said we needed a new scene for this actor that was coming in the next day. It's like, yeah, but I have to be up at three to go to City Field, but we need it. It's like, okay. And so then you get an hour of sleep, but you, you, you still persevere. And probably when you're sleeping, it's one of those sleeps where it's not a sound sleep because your mind's no. probably still racing. And you know how it is when you sit there and you're, I mean, want to get an idea, and then you sit there and you're trying to go to sleep, and then your mind's like, and you go, I don't want to forget this. I don't, and then you, you start. It's, it's, le- it's less about that because I'm exhausted at the end of the day. It's more about the paranoia of I can't, I can't sleep in. So I usually set the alarm an hour before. <laughs> I keep all the lights on. And so it's sort of an in and out sleep. And I usually have my, my phone alarm and then another alarm. So if one of them doesn't work. Isn't, so that, isn't that weird? No, I used to do it because I used to go back a lot back east to see my girlfriend before she moved out here. And I would take at the time Virgin America had an early flight so the shuttle would pick me up at like 5 a.m. and I'd do the same thing like I'd say okay I'm gonna go to sleep at night and I wouldn't and you sit there and you constantly keep waking up because you're afraid you're gonna oversleep yeah so it's it's crazy I mean those <laughs> yeah I, 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 didn't, I didn't I didn't get much rest so after Boo was done 
you have the, this first project. Now, where do you where do you decide to go? What avenue do you decide to take? Do you say I want to just I want to write and direct, or did you say I'm going to write, or did you say whatever opportunity comes up, I'll take? Uh, you know, I mean, I had my projects. I kept pushing those, and um, you know, I mean, I, I I learned a long time ago. You 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 just jump at the opportunities that come up. And uh, Sci-Fi had aired Boo. Uh, and it did really well for them, and they wanted me to do one of their films. It was called Headless Horseman. Right, that's... And uh, so, uh, you know, I inherited a script that they had already developed, and then I, st- I worked on that for, for a few months, trying to kind of get it into shape. And um, we ended up... Um, we were supposed to shoot in Missouri, and uh, we went there for, I think, two weeks, and then there was there was issues with getting a union crew because there was a lot of other bigger films that were shooting there at the time and they wouldn't let us pull crew from Kansas City so the producers uh, said go home so we all went home and then I got a call a week later going we're going to go to Romania (laughs) have you you ever been to Romania? no have you ever been to Europe? no okay no so I I know I had been to the UK before but uh, but yeah so it's like okay you're going to Romania and uh, okay, so we're going to make a movie set in America and shoot in Romania. That sounds that that's that. You know, it's like the the whole thing about in Los Angeles about Runaway Productions. You know, when when producers don't get what they want and they can't afford to do it, or it's made it make it's very difficult, they will go elsewhere. And I had a great time in Romania, but why couldn't we shoot it here in America? Why couldn't we shoot in Los Angeles? It's it's just cost prohibitive. So we went we went there and. Uh, you know that was that was definitely an interesting experience. I mean, you know, you just had at at your disposal all these 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 resources and stuff, and uh, it was it was it was pretty fun. So after that, you follow up on looking. You follow up with a uh, a few movies: House of Bones, Scream the Banshee. Yeah. So so what after happened after that? Um, you know, I was still developing other stuff, but um, you know, to direct something, I, I still wanted I wanted something where I had at least a little more control. Um, to be able to to do what I know I can do on this, these things, and a lot of times, you know, producers will come to you and they'll go, "Oh, this is great," and then we're gonna do it for for no money, and you know, we don't really care about the movie, and it's like you don't you don't want to put your name on a film as a director that that's just it's gonna get hacked out at the end of the day. You can kill yourself and make a great movie, and then they don't care. Um, and and I mean like you know in the post production or anything. How does like that, that feel for you? Like I mean, like what has that happened to you where you sit there and go, "God damn it." You know what? It, this is not what I did. No, you don't know what it is. It's uh, no. I mean, uh, but all the movies I'm proud of that I've done. I mean, there's, there, there. Like I said, there's things in them that, as a director, I go, oh gosh, I wish we could have done that or that. But you know, my, my stamp is on all of them. I, I, I care about them, and I, and I was fortunate on on the films that I've done as a director that I had good producers on there that that, that took a chance and let me do things. I mean. David let me do some really weird stuff on Pooh. There's there's some stuff. There were there were days like, okay, we're putting this, we're putting our lead actress on a dolly and wheeling her through this weird surreal landscape. I, I just I just imagine him walking through the door, going, "What are you guys doing? <laughs> Stop this now!" And he never did, and that was that was kind of cool. Uh, but um, so so what I did is I wanted to I wanted to get better as a writer, and I took a lot of writing assignments, and because I knew that uh, you know. It, it, it's an, it was important for me to become faster as a writer because I'm not a fast I wasn't a fast writer I'm getting better at it and um, and also just kind of go okay these are these are the ones these are the babies that you give up for adoption and see what happens with them were you sought out by like these production companies to write these scripts because you were, had because of Boo and because your other work did they say okay we want Anthony to do it or you know there, or there was a lot there was a lot of that and then there was some stuff where you'd pitch stories like some of the stuff I did with sci-fi you would come up with a whole bunch of different pitches and like oh let's do this let's do that that must be great pitching to sci-fi because they'll no matter what is it can be the craziest idea there's a chance they're going to make it which is great I mean that must be great for you your mind must be like Boom, boom, well, well, boom. most of the thing is, I was the horror guy. I did suspense. I did, I did scary stuff. So, you know, I rare, I rarely pitched them anything strange. And uh, ironically, the two, the two concepts that uh, that were like the throwaways one time. One of them was Sharknado that I'd come up with a friend of mine, Jacob Hare, who I've written a couple scripts with. And uh, so, so it was like that. They were at the bottom of the pitch list. It's like, well, let's just give them a couple crazy hybrid monster things, and Sharknado was one of them. <laughs> and they di- and they didn't nibble at it at first. And uh, I had written a script called Leprechaun's Revenge for them, and I put a reference to a Sharknado, and that's when they go, "We want to make this movie." Oh, that's funny. Now, Hansel and Gretel. Yes. Now, was that with sci-fi, or was that what was that with? No, that was just the Asylum. Um, I knew the the partners over at the asylum david latt david maui for for a very long time um i had 
worked on a film called Scarecrow that uh, they produced, and then David had directed the sequel. I, so I did the makeup effects, and I did Second Unit on both of those movies. And occasionally they would call me up and you know say, "Do you want to do something?" And then they had this Hansel and Gretel thing, and um, they were saying, "Look, you know, we'll, we'll give you control. Just you know, you got to deliver on the parameters of of what." Uh, of what we need, you know, which they told me what they needed. And then literally they hired me, they hired the screenwriter at the same time. I worked with the writer on kind of creating this, this little uh, spooky horror film for them. And it was actually a really great experience. Um, it was a very low budget movie, uh, but uh, it, it was, it was kind of, it was kind of neat and a challenge. It was kind of like making a student film again um, because, you know, it was a whole group of people that and I would have never been exposed to. I mean, I met my DP that I, I, I've worked with now on the last five projects, which is Ben Demery. I found an AD, which I, who I love, uh, Esther Johnson. And just a lot of really talented people. And they, they, a lot of these people had worked on a lot of other asylum movies. And, um, you know, they, you know, you get people in that care and people that don't. And um, what happened was, uh, you know, they saw that, that, you know, I was giving 150%. So they were, they were doing extra stuff because they wanted this thing to be cool. And the movie turned out really good. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's a, it's a, it, I, I have a hard time with uh, like the Hostel and Saw movies. And they wanted a little of that torture porn stuff. And, and that's, I just, I, I don't really like that that kind of movie just just even as a filmmaker it's kind of icky for me not that i would never do another one of them but so i had to find my entree into how do i make this work for me and it was kind of putting it into the fantastical there's there's elements of it but it's still on it's still a it's a fairy tale and the other element was originally it was like, well, we got to make the witch like, you know, the pointy nose witch and all that stuff. And I'm like, no, no, no. Right. The, the witch <laughs> needs to be normal. We're, I'm going to get Dee Wallace because Dee was in my first movie. And so I begged Dee Wallace to be in the film. I said, look, I, 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 this, this has got to be an acting movie. And, you know, the horror has to be surrounded. And you need to do it. Please, please do it. And we worked it out. And she came out and did it. And she nailed it. And there's some great acting in that. I mean, she was so on fire in this movie because she got a chance to do uh you know really really kind of wicked evil character but it was grounded uh, a lot of the, almost all the scripts that I've, I've written or been involved with as a filmmaker you know i learned a lot from a lot of the john sales movies like the howling and you know piranha you know they were always about something else you know piranha was about vietnam you know there was there's different things so it's like i always try to figure out what are these movies about and so with Hansel and Gretel, the thing that kind of made it all come together was it's, it's about uh, hunger, because that's what the, the story is about. Right. And so it's like, I, and I told uh, Jose, what is each character hungering for? Well, you know, Gretel, Gretel wants to move on, Hansel wants things to stay the same, and the witch wants a daughter. And once we figure that out, I mean, you watch Dee, and I see her playing that throughout the whole movie, and it's just, it's nice to kind of kind of put that stuff in, because at the end of the day, there's going to be your horror crowd. Those are the people that, okay, they're going to watch it, they're, they're there just for the, the expectation or just to be scared, but then people that are going to come back to it, you need to have something else that they can find if they like the movie. I think that's why Boo is kind of stood the test of time. There's a lot going on in the movie above and beyond just being a horror film. Is Boo on Netflix? It's not. Well, it, I think they don't have any more DVDs. It's out of print. But recently, uh, Hulu Plus uh, picked it up, so you can okay. stream it on Hulu Plus. Because yeah, I like to check it out. Cause I always like. I always like. I have a guy coming on in a few weeks, an actor, Eddie Jam Jemison, and he wrote a movie. It's called King of the Herrings, and uh, I just I, he sent me a little the Vimeo, and it's like it's cool because they're they're movies that. Not everyone sees, but you, you sit there, and if you appreciate movies, you know. It's just cool, especially like after you talk to someone, you go, "Wow, you know, you, you see your passion." When I see you talking about how your passion for Boo is, and I'm sure if I watch it, it will translate into the movie. Well, and and you know, the thing is, I also approach these movies as if I'm, I'm never going to make another one again. So it's like I'm never going to hold back and go, "Oh, I'll save that for something." It's right. like, shove it in there. Got to got to get it in there. Uh, Boo did really really well. We shipped like a hundred thousand DVD units when it when it came out initially. I mean, we were supposed to ship thirty five. The artwork was great. It was a little independent company that. After after Boo was successful for them, they went bankrupt. <laughs> so all the money that we would have made off of there went into their bankruptcy. Um, so, but but it was all grassroots, and um, and it sold every single foreign territory, which is very hard to do. And it kept selling. And I think I think part of that was the testament of we made a movie that was kind of timeless. You know, we like well, I think only four years ago we sold to Japan and France. That's pretty good. You know, a movie that was you know seven eight years old at that right. time. Uh, so, 
you know, I, all all the all the movies I've done for all these different companies have been s- successful in some way. I mean, Hansel and Gretel was, I think, one of the best DVD sellers for Asylum last year until Sharknado happened. Yeah, so Sharknado, you said you had that on the bottom of your list, and now you it, you how did you come up with the idea in in Leprechaun's Revenge, aka Red Clover? Uh, <laughs> no, no, it was it was before that. We had pitched uh, Jake, Jacob and I. You know, I had come up with a whole bunch of pitches, and and Jake had written uh, a couple really. Uh, a script called the key that um hopefully one day we'll we'll get to make and so i said well, i gotta come up with these silly titles you know do you want to want to help pitch a few things and so we just started batting it back and forth and and sharknado and uh, i think the other one was lava birds came out of it and we just thought that there was something about sharknado that was just completely ridiculous and silly and you know it's a small little pitch and you just send it over but the title just was an earworm and and it just we we loved it and we, in fact, we were trying to figure out, can we turn this into something before Sci-Fi decided to do something with it? So Sci-Fi decides to do it, and they have you at the helm. And now, is your friend the writer on it? No, they, they hired... Uh, it was All this stuff was being independently, because I wasn't the obvious person to do Sharknado, because most of my stuff was horror movies. So they were a little like, well, he's the horror guy. And then uh, Asylum pushed to, to have me do Sharknado as a director, and they had... They were developing a, a film called Shark Storm, and they hired their regular writer Thunder Eleven to come in and uh, and work on it. And so then I came in and uh, basically tr- started gearing it towards some of the stuff that you know we'd always talked about, and you know, did some rewriting on it, and you know, tried 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 to uh, tried to live up to that uh, Sharknado name. A lot of people didn't get it. A lot of people didn't want to do it. A lot of actors didn't want to do the movie. But I always believed in this title, and I always believed in what the, what it could be. Well, how did you how did you pitch Ian Ziering? I mean, it's, do you know because I mean, he's it's so funny. He's had that kind of career where he was so big on nine hundred two one zero, and now he's just I mean everywhere. You see him on Today Show. You see it. It's just it's what this movie has done. I mean, how do you? I mean, as I'm sure actors they want to work and then something, but as a director, you know, you you believe in the project, but how is someone selling it to the actor to say okay? It's a movie about a storm with sharks. I mean, how do you? I mean, the production th- company lies. That's how they do it. Now they they put they went and pit. They see, they they go out to a bunch of different actors at the asylum and they see what sticks. And uh, initially, they put it out as Sharknado. No one wanted to be in a movie called Sharknado. And then they called it Dark Skies. And that's uh that's how we got Tara Reid and and Ian Ziering. And, and you know that you know a lot of times you you do movies under different names anyway, just because. And. Uh, I think that third or fourth day in, they got the 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 ink. They they were starting to hear uh, rumblings that it might be called Sharknado, and uh, we were shooting in the hardware store, and they all the actors, like, every single one of them, were there, and they were all like pitchforks and flames, and going, "I hear it's getting called Sharknado. You can you have to tell them it can't be called Sharknado. Oh my gosh, this is terrible. <laughs> call it this, call it that." Um, and I like I said, I told everybody, go. I go look. I look like. If they decide to call it Sharknado, which there's a good <laughs> chance it's going to be called Sharknado. Yeah, you're doing an anarchy almost on you, huh? Oh, yeah. No, and I said, I said, you just have to trust me. If it's called Sharknado, it's a good thing. I remember saying those exact words. If they call it Sharknado, it's a good thing. Dark Skies, it's generic. You don't know what it is. Yeah. Dark Skies could be a, a TV show about aliens. It could be... A TV show. And there was about already a storm. like two, there was already two or three movies out there like that anyway, and I and I think Ian said sense that he called his agent, going, "You gotta get me out of this. What the heck? They're gonna call." <laughs> and uh, and so you know, but as we went along, they saw what we were trying to do, and they and you know, and I mean, Ian was great from day one. They were all great. It's just they were a little nervous because it could be a career killer. I mean, look, right. we all kind of knew. Look, if if we're gonna go down and. Flaming sharks. We might as well go down in flaming sharks with Sharknado. Let's kill our careers, but let's let's go in a glorious hail of shark teeth or something. And um, so you know, we tried to make a really cool movie. I mean, Ian did a lot of his own stunts, and you know, it, it, the testament to this man letting us on the coldest day of of the year in Los Angeles last year, dumping fifty gallons of blood on him and asking him to birth his way out of a, a shark belly. That if that doesn't show how committed he was, that that could have that could have just backfired on him, and it and it turned him into an action star. Now I have a question, as from from a director standpoint, and that's also a production standpoint. When you have that scene where he climbs out, you know, now do you know in your mind because it's a lower budget that you have to nail that in one take? I mean, is it or, or are you going to be able to do it? 
I mean, how does that work? I was wondering, like, some of these scenes, like, for a lower-budget movie, you pretty much have to get that in the one take, well, right? Lo- Lower-budget movies means that you don't, you, you get you get one or two takes for everything. I mean, that's just the nature of it. I mean, you're do- on, on Headless Horse, when we counted it one time, and this was a 12-hour day, uh, I think with our record in, in one day was 85 setups with two cameras and I think 65 setups with one camera. That's a lot of setups. And that's how you get your coverage on these things. You, ju- you go, okay, we're here. We do a master. Great. Let's move on. Get the close-ups. And, you know, you, get, you, get, you, know, you can buy yourself some time to get a little, little bit here and there for, for some extra moments if you know you need that scene right. But most of the time, it's like you got to go, go, go. Um, on, on the Sharknado scene, uh, there's, there's different pieces that make up that whole sequence. There's the digital shark that lands. There's him going into the shark, which uh, is partially green screen with him and then the fake shark. And then there's the shark that lands on the ground after that. There, we built a, um, uh, a belly of a shark, not a head and a tail, but a belly. It was all silicone. And um, we did, uh, we had a stunt person do the chainsawing for the slit initially like two or three days before so we did that as a wide shot for the plate and a close-up so you see this chainsaw an actual chainsaw chainsawing its way through it um and what they did with digitally was they put the skin on it so it was uh you know the head and the tail so that that whole initial chainsawing is a combination of practical and digital um, in fact, there was a lot of stuff where in digital effects stuff, they kept putting extra blood. I'm like, no, no, keep the real blood. Right. You know, it's like, and so there's this weird balance of trying to make that all work. Then everything with the close-up was we came back to that that belly, and it was already pre-slit, and he had the sort of the fake chainsaw. But uh, we, we it was the end of the day, so we only had, we really, if we were lucky, we could only do it two takes. And also, Ian was freezing to death. And so, you know, we, we couldn't, we couldn't go beyond that anyway. So he, he nailed it in the first take. We did a second one and then we put Cassie in there, pulled him out and then they ran to the showers and, and got warmed up. Um, you know, they, it, 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 you know, and he, and I think because he knew he didn't want to do it multiple times because it was so cold, he just went for it with right. gusto. I mean, that, he just nailed it in the first take. So truck you get done. Everything's the pre-production's done. It goes on air and sci-fi and people like it yeah and it blows up it was so what's that like for you for a director who you went in here and you, you weren't even the horror you're the horror guy and you yeah. get this and all of a sudden i mean you i just said you you always do your last movie i mean movie like it's your last one so you go into this and you're probably thinking okay it's gonna do well i mean you, you know it's no no i thought it will just it would do what they normally do on sci-fi right. you know it'll get an okay rating but it's you know i, I don't i i have low expectations so if things work out then uh, you know because you never know with this stuff so with that though what is it what, all of a sudden when you sit there and you're hearing this buzz because even sharknado got a lot of buzz the first one now as a director you must be like wow this is really cool no it's it's very cool because the thing is like i talked to you before about the i did a lot of comedic shorts so i mean sharknado is more in line with a lot of the other stuff that i've done which is is these little short comedy bits and stuff i mean it's it's a it's an action movie it's played straight but there's a lot of humor in it there's a lot of weird stuff which i like doing and I, I, like I, said, I thought it was just too weird for people. Um, when, but when it blew up, it was still very disconnected. We knew that night we knew something had happened when it blew up on Twitter. We didn't know what it was. And then suddenly I'm doing all these interviews the next day. But while that was after Sharknado 1? After Sharknado 1. Okay. I mean, I, I, I think I did like Nightline and NBC Nightly News. I mean, just every single thing you can imagine. It was like just driving around that day. And I knew that there was something. I, I knew that this, that you know, this was a this was a big deal. But then on the flip side, you know, I'd go back to the asylum, and we were still working on the DVD, and it's just it felt weird because it was like it's still a low budget movie. It, there's a disconnect from suddenly we we made you know the whatever the the big studio blockbuster of the summer, but it was a TV movie, and everybody was talking about it. And that, but then it's still, it was a low budget movie. It just, it just, you know, we're sitting in this little small office color correcting for the DVD. It just, it just always felt very, very weird. Right. You know, I mean, it it was, it was cool, but it was just everybody's perception of it. It, for us, it was, it was this great thing. And we were on cloud nine. It was fantastic. It got all this attention, but it, it it just, it's still, it felt like somebody else's movie was out there. Well then, okay. So that's, it's great. Um, it's this thing goes up now. How does Sharknado two come up? Because it was big. They said we have to do a sequel. As instantly, I mean, it, it blew up, and Sci-Fi right before Comic Con, Sci-Fi goes, "We're doing another one, and it's going to be New York." 
and we jo- we were making jokes on the set like oh yeah if there's a sequel it'll be Sharknadosaurus and then a tornado goes back in time and you know it was it was stuff that would never happen I've never I've never written or uh, directed a sequel except for my short films right. which don't count so so you know to think that there would ever be a sequel to Sharknado I didn't think was a possibility until it blew up and then it became a reality and then they said New York I'm like ah there's nothing that we can do. oh wait a minute what if we decapitate the Statue of Liberty head what if we did? And then it was like, ah, oh, I'm in, <laughs> you know, because it was just like there. When you talk about New York, it's just like there's so many cool things that you could do. And I think that that's for me the key is is always is there something interesting that I can do with it? Do I got ideas? Like when I read other scripts that people want me to read for consideration. Well, what if we did that? What if we do this? So it's all about getting excited about it. And the Hansel and Gretel was the same thing. It's like I can do this, and and you know, it's it's fun. Now when, when now when Sharknado, you're excited. You're going to New York, and now does Ian Zierig sign right up, or is he a little like I don't know? I mean, no, I, I don't think anybody didn't want to be involved in it. I think it was just a matter of this 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 doesn't happen with sci-fi or Asylum where you have a sequel and you bring everybody back and you want to bring everybody back. So it, it was all kind of like oh, we actually have to talk to people now because because normally these movies are made really quickly and it's like you know two weeks or three weeks before, I had two weeks of prep on Sharknado. I mean, it's not a lot of time to prep these movies. So, uh, so to actually prepare ahead of time is, 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 a, is a whole other different concept. But no, he wanted to come back, and we all wanted him back, and I wanted to return and thunder, and we kind of all knew in some capacity this was going to work out. It's just, uh, it, took a, it took a little time because we had to have a script first. You know, we needed to see if the script was working, and, you know, I, th- I think every actor wants to read a script. And, uh, and it all worked out. We got we got Ian and Tara back, and uh, you know they're the heart of our film. And what's great is also you know Al Roker was in it, Matt Lauer. I mean that's just it's so funny because I could see I could see Al Roker doing it, but Matt Lauer seems more like the serious type. Oh, a- Matt was fantastic. You know we we wrote we had an hour with them at their Today Show set. We wrote like twelve pages of dialogue. I mean just it was like and the producers like oh, this is too much. They can't do this. It's like they're news guys. They can pull all this stuff off. So they put it in their teleprompter, and they're all there doing their stuff. And uh, it is just amazing how fast they were. And, and I was listening to Matt kind of do this stuff, and um, I went over to him. I'm going, when, when, when Al says, uh, you, you say Sharkstorm, Al's going to say Sharknado. You don't say Sharknado. You have a problem with the word Sharknado. And he, he, he just latched onto it. It's, my, I think, probably my favorite little character dialogue moment because he's just like uh, – you know, he goes, uh, he goes, a shark storm, and Alan reps him, goes, this sharknado, a sharknado, and he goes, the shark storm. He takes a breath, and it's just, it's funny, because <laughs> uh, I thought, yeah, that, that's his character, that's Matt's character in this movie, you know, he just, he won't, because a lot of people can't accept the sharknado title anyway, they still don't, it's, it's ridiculous, so I thought, okay, he'll be, he'll be this way, and then the whole arc of him is coming around to saying the word sharknado, and then at the end, killing a shark. So they were all game for it. I mean, literally, like Al, uh, Matt Lauer, is, uh, Al's holding the, the, the green screen shark, and, and Matt's like stabbing it with right, an right. umbrella. And then I, at the at tail end of it, I go, Matt, do a war cry when you when you when you do the second stab. And then he goes, Ah! It's like they were they were a blast. They're probably it's probably just uh, it's also just fun for them because it's so it's such a different thing, and it's and it's they're in New York, you know. And and the thing is, people. My brother lives in New York, and it's. New Yorkers embrace New Yorkers. So it's like Al Roker. Everyone loves Al Roker. And just to have him involved, you know, in this whole thing of, you know, wanting to get the sharks, people are just like, you know. Well, you know, you know, I read some stuff where it's, oh, the, the constant bleeding of real news and, and, and entertainment. It's like, today's show is an entertainment show. I mean, it does hard news, but they, they have fun on that show. It, it's, it's a morning show. So why, why not let... Al and Matt have some fun on a movie, especially something like this in Sharknado. It's like it's so bizarre that people get bent out of shape about this stuff, but they added added legitimacy to the film, and I, I'm so glad that we were able to get them in there. It was it was fun. Then you had Strahan, yeah, and and, and Kelly and right. Kelly and Michael uh, wanted to do it. They actually did, did they hear that Roker and Al uh, no, and they said we want to get in this or no no and because they're not even part. I see today since Sci-Fi is NBC owned, uh, you know, uh, Today Show made sense, but they're they're actually ABC right. But they had done a parody of Sharknado two trailer 
last October for their Halloween show, and they had an eye on. And every time one of their guests came in, they they like you know Robert De Niro or or, or Robin Williams, they go ah you know, and then they put in really bad sharks and stuff. So when they did that, we you know we knew we wanted them in in the film, and that's kind of how that all happened. Is because they they kind of like were in on the joke and wanted to be a part of the second movie. The hard part was figuring out what to do with them. Uh, you know, a- everything that we did with every single cameo was trying to integrate them so it wasn't just, hey, look, it's that person. Ah, you know, we tried to give everybody something little, you know, a little something, something, sometimes a little bit more. And not every, every cameo person died, which I think is really cool. Uh, Robert Hayes was actually one of my favorites. Uh, right. Were, were you a fan of air, were oh, you a fan okay. of the airplane yeah, movies? I mean, course. who isn't? Of we course, all, we all grew up on airplane. I mean, just, you know, everybody loves the airplane movies and we were in new york i brought airplane with me and um my daughter is 11 and i had never shown it to her so my wife and daughter we were watching this one night before we were even starting to shoot and because i thought she'd like she likes silly things and turned to my wife going robert hayes for the pilot because we were thinking maybe william shatner or john lithgow because of, of the parody of, of, right. of the twilight zone thing they would be a good thing but i'm like robert hayes robert hayes as i called up the producers right away i'm going we have to get Robert Hayes to play the pilot. And they were like, well, it, doesn't it make it a little jokey? It's like, no, let's make him a doc. No, no, he has to be the pilot. And it's like, yeah, but look, I promise with my fingers crossed, I will not make any airplane jokes in when we shoot him. And, and so, uh, so they called him up and he was game for it. And then I said, here's the other thing. We can't tell anybody he's in this movie. Because if anybody knows he's in this movie, it's going to spoil the surprise. For, for anybody that likes this kind of stuff. Right. And so we had to keep him quiet up until when they showed it to the critics and they started talking about it and it still didn't get out too much, which was great. Um, he was under wraps. I mean, no one knew about it. No one could, no, no one was allowed to tweet photos of Robert Hayes. I mean, it was like under lock and key. And when I, after we had cut the movie together, I, I, you know, they were, my editor was assembling the movie while we were shooting. And so I came in to watch the, the first assembled cut. And the moment Robert Hayes came on, I just smiled. And I'm like, okay, that was it was it was the right thing, and we did it. And we did put a few airplane things in there, but um, I, I had Thunder watch airplane and go, look, find anything where we can pull things that can give us a little bit of a nod to airplane, but aren't the obvious things. And so one of them was, you know, it's flight 209, which is the same flight as the airplane flight. Um, I had uh, Robert Hayes and Rachel True kind of ad lib efficient you know a chicken kind of line and then i think the only other one was it's running a little hot uh so 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 we we put a few things in there but we tried to play it completely straight i mean you once you have robert hayes in there you don't really he could not have any airplane reference and you're still smiling gloriously so we didn't want to hit the nail over the head with that we wanted to still play it as straight and that's what he did on the airplane films the actual cool part about was is we shot at uh, uh van nuys uh air hollywood and the airplane set we were shooting on, literally parallel right next to us, was the original airplane set that they had purchased. One of my one of my real good friends works for Air Hollywood. Yeah, so so it was like it was just it was just like eerie, and it was the and it, you knew it was the right thing, and so we all got photos with Robert Hayes on the cockpit. See, that's cool. That's cool. So okay, we have about uh, seven minutes left. Um, well, you had Judd Hirsch in it. Yeah. Which, uh, if you grew up watching Taxi, you know you love Judd Hirsch. Now. You get done Sharknado 2, and right away, did they find out the Sharknado? I mean, I saw, I saw an article that said where Sharknado 3 is going to be. It says either, I mean, the, of course, there's anything on the internet that says either uh, Boston or Chicago or uh, Hong Kong or somewhere else. And it's like, for you, it must be like, do you, do you, have, do you personally decide where it's going to be? Like, no, no, I mean, the, the network and Asylum will, will come up with stuff, and then, you know, if, you know, you know li- we'll pitch things. Like, I, on the last movie, a lot of the set pieces, you know, we, were, we, we developed just by coming up with that. Like, that whole airplane was, like, one of the first things I said, I want to do this airplane sequence. And so that's how that came about. Um, I'm no, no one's hired on number three yet. Uh, but, uh, you know, the thing is, it's kind of in our DNA, so I'm sh- there's a lot of things you can do. I, uh, to me, though, I think... One city, we've already hit New York and L.A., one city cannot, there's no city out there, I think, that can sustain a full film. you got to mix and match and do something else. But 
Um, we'll, we'll see what they want to do. I mean, I, I know Ian and myself and everybody else, just for selfish reasons, would love for it to be global and go international. Right. Just because it's a vacation. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I had a blast in New York. So, hey, you know, hey, we'll go to Paris for a couple of days. You know, let's go to, you know, but I, I, I don't know where it's all going to land. Um, I think at the end of the day, it also has to be what is a story. I mean, as much as everybody gets, oh, these things don't have stories, there's a story to it. I mean, there's a heart to both of these movies, especially in the second one. You know, it's about Finn kind of reclaiming his family and, and, and falling in love with his wife again and, and, and also accepting the fact that, yeah, he may be the guy that got swallowed by a shark and lived to tell about it, but, you know, he is a hero. Because at the end of the last movie, there's a little irony to what happened. That last shot, it's like you see Los Angeles decimated, and these guys threw bombs in a tornado to destroy it. And in my head, it's like they destroyed half of Los Angeles in the process. <laughs> the collateral damage was huge. So L.A. doesn't like him. <laughs> And, and I, I kept thinking there was this, some idiot with the cell phone, some kid, he took a photo of this guy kind of birthing himself out of the shark, and there was just this meme that kept going over and over. And so, so that was kind of the whole impetus with the, the, the Finn character, even though some of that stuff isn't in the movie, it's just in the back of my head. You know, he was trying to, like, I got to get away from this. And it's some of the stuff that happened to us, too. You know, it became this huge thing. And the opening of the movie, some of the dialogue is kind of definitely reflected what all of us went through with the success of the first movie. Now... When is this supposed to start shooting? Do you have a date? Nah, they, I mean, I'm sure it'll be January, February. But like I said, no one's been hired. Not my, I haven't been hired. And so, know. what are you? What are you doing now? Are you working on other projects right now? Yeah, no, I've been taking a lot of meetings with the studios, and um, also I'm shooting a commercial right next door here uh, uh, in about two weeks uh, for an energy drink. So, is that your first commercial? Second commercial, right after Sharknado, I did a commercial for a. It was called a live action trailer for a video game uh, called Hello Hero. And they wanted uh, they wanted this big kind of you know, superhero visual effects thing, you know, in the kind of the tone of Sharknado. So it was actually kind of fun just getting together. I brought brought a lot of the Sharknado crew over, and we we just did this really fun commercial, and it was really epic. And I would have never had that opportunity prior to Sharknado. That's that's the great thing is that before again, like we talked about, I was the horror guy. So I mean, before Sharknado, I mean, I would have been under under the janitor. Uh, to be considered for that commercial <laughs> right you know and now it's like hey we want you it's like cool well it's more weird thing about commercials is I had a guest on who was in a KFC commercial that was directed by David O. Russell so it's like you, and that I mean this was just two years ago so yeah. it's amazing that you know the parallel now is they they get really good directors to do commercials because if like for you if you can sit there and make a shark movie a hit a, a 30 second commercial you know how to hit it and that must be great for you because I've heard the commercial deal I mean being a commercial director is just a, a commercial gig oh yeah they're, they're a great gig and, and the other thing too uh, is that um, I think it's great with the, where the studio system is going right now too for filmmakers like myself is that you see a lot of people like Gareth Edwards who did a $500,000 you know indie science fiction film Monsters and he's doing Godzilla and he's going to do a Star Wars movie Ryan Johnson who did Looper and Brick these really great indie films he's doing the next Star Wars film you know? and then you have James Gunn who came from Troma is making probably the best movie of the summer that came out which was Guardians of the Galaxy so, you know, the thing is, there's a lot of directors that know how to do these big movies, but they need the money hose turned on. And they make great movies because of it, but, you know, they, the, the budget's ballooned because they go, oh, we need to do this. Someone like me is like, well, you give me $50 million, I'll make it look like 200 because I, I, I know how to maximize the resources. We, you know, we shot Sharknados in 18 days. You know, we had very little money for these movies. We had over 700 visual effects shots for Sharknado 2, and we shot the movie in February and delivered it in June. It's pretty That's amazing. It's, it's amazing. It's it's nuts. So I mean, they're and and they were they were big hits. So I think that's the great thing is that um, you know I just want to keep making movies, but I also love the fact that Sharknado has allowed me to be considered for things I would have never been considered before. So I don't necessarily have to do every horror movie that comes around. Are you excited to make a big budget movie? Oh, I'd love to. I mean, just I'd love to. That, you know, after I mean, just if they said, "Hey, you can take a month and a half to shoot this," you'd probably be like, "What?" You probably wouldn't know what to do. You'd be like, hey, I love what I can "Yeah, I'd probably quick. be like Clint Eastwood." It's like, "Oh wow, you know, you're giving me a hundred days, and then we get to like day sixty-five. It's like I, I think we're done. <laughs> well, what, we'll keep shooting. It's like, well, what do you want me to shoot? It's like we got. Let's just put the money somewhere else. Let's go make a second movie. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, I mean, look, I, I, the, the, the weird thing is, whenever you have X amount of days, you always use those days. It's just uh, you know, it allows you to make things more polished sharknadoes are a little more rough around the edges but they're they're movies that don't know they can't do that and i think that's part of their charm i want to thank you for coming on this is, uh, this is great it was uh, it was uh, great to talk to you and it's just so cool to see you know the, the progression and of now you know you're doing 
films just out of a certain niche where you started, then it, it shows anyone's career can go different ways. Yeah. Now, can people find you online? Do you have a website or anything? Yeah, or? Uh, you can find me, uh, AC Ferrante, on Twitter. Um, also, I have a band called Quint. Uh, so you can find us at, at Quint the Band. Um, that's with Robbie Rist. Uh, we actually did a lot of the songs in the Sharknado okay. movies, including the Ballad of Sharknado. And you can find those songs on iTunes uh, under our EP, Great White Skies. And um, other than that, uh, you know, we'll see where the rest of this uh, this journey takes us. Great. Well, thank you. So, uh, yeah, check it out, people. Check out the band and check all this information out. Uh, check me out. Follow me on Twitter, at Cooper Talk. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have about, I don't know, like 280 episodes up. Um, what else? Uh, iTunes, Stitcher, type in one word, Cooper Talk. You can find me there. If you have an Android tablet or phone, go to the Google Play Store, type in Cooper Talk. And you'll find all my episodes there. So it's easy to find. Email me, cooper talk, cooper.talk at yahoo.com. My email just recently changed. So send me some emails, see who you'd like to hear. I try to keep getting great, great and interesting guests for you guys. And uh, that's about it. So yeah, follow me on Twitter. That's what I ask for, at Cooper Talk. And don't forget every Tuesdays at Jimmy's Place on San Fernando, I'll be hosting crappy comedy. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Uh, you have a great weekend. Also, don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables and take your vitamins i am out of here to go actually start going back to the gym have a good weekend